decline of Christianity in American culture and the loss of influence of Jesus' church is the result of many issues, perhaps none as great as the evangelical church's conclusions about our future. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series have influenced the vast majority of Christians to anticipate the imminent rise of a dominant figure that will control the world's political, economic, and religious systems and will plunge this world into the Great Tribulation. Is that actually what the Bible teaches us? Have you, or those you know, seriously considered what the book of Revelation teaches? If you are like the majority of people today, you've accepted those ideas without a lot of serious consideration or study. In this series, Dr. Russ McKendry is teaching through the book of Revelation to reveal what it actually says about your future, the role of Jesus' church, and the practical implications those conclusions have on your worldview and everyday life. We hope that you'll join us for this entire series and increase in confidence about what you believe and why. Now, here's Russ with Overcoming Bystander Christianity. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Many of you have heard me say that teaching through certain parts of Scripture is really, really difficult, because occasionally you come across verses that pretty much everyone knows and when you come to those I can tell when I'm watching you and when I'm kind of observing what's going on out there that there's a lot of people that just kind of believe that those verses are so familiar that they just kind of know pretty much everything that could be known about those verses and and that's that's kind of a end of the spectrum that really makes it hard in teaching large groups of people. Um, but the book of Revelation is, is a completely different animal when it comes to that because it's not that most Christians have really, really dug in and studied it. It's not like that at all. In fact, the book of Revelation is one of the most rarely taught portions of Scripture today at all. Uh, many of you I've talked to have never ever gone through a study of the book of Revelation. Many of you have never read through it. And yet you, I think in general, Christianity today has this perspective of it that you just know. You just know what it's about. And I think that there's a lot of reason for that. I think there's a basis for this that oftentimes is a little bit off our radar. radar. It's a little bit on the margin. Um, I want you to consider a couple of facts as we begin this study. Um, the first one is this, that in, in spite of all the cultural decline, we've heard a lot. You read Unchristian by Kinnaman. You read a lot of different, different types of, of research and study today. But in spite of all the cultural decline that Christianity has endured over the past two decades, still three out of four Christians still consider themselves to be Christians, 75%. Now, I don't believe that's really true. I don't really didn't ever have a lot of confidence when it was up in the mid-80s about a decade ago. And it's, it's actually dropping about 1% per year. So it's, it's declining fairly quickly. But what that tells you is that 75 out of 100 people that you know are in some way oriented towards or sympathetic towards Christianity. In other words, even in a nominal way, if it's even just sitting in a, with a clipboard at the hospital when they have check a box, and if everything goes drastically wrong, who do you want come and see you? People check the box that they're Christians. Now, the reason this is significant is because of what Christianity has done with the book of Revelation. Um, I, I, I want to show you that since 1970, so, for more than 40 years now, the influence uh, regarding the book of Revelation is kind of interesting because it's actually come from novels, 
from several novels that were actually passed off as theological works. And this is what caused a massive influence in the United States. It first started with Hal Lindsey with a book that he published. It, it was printed in 1970 called The Late Great Planet Earth. And it just talked about this devastating destruction of everything. Now, that was followed about 15, 16 years later by Frank Peretti. He did several books in a series called This Present Darkness. The first one was published in 1986. So about 16 years from this mega success that Lindsay wrote in the late great planet Earth, then Peretti wrote This Present Darkness. And then in the mid-90s, it was followed up by the most successful of all of these, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote the Left Behind series. It was actually 16 volumes. I still can't believe that anybody read all 16. If you did, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I'll never get that out. I, I just don't want to think that about any of you. But many people did. Many people did. And I, I want to tell you how influential this is. Now remember, 75 out of 100 people are sympathetic towards Christianity. Now, this is interesting that in 1998, the first four books of that Left Behind series held the top four uh, slots simultaneously despite the fact that the New York Times bestseller list does not take Christian bookstore sales into account. And book 10 debuted at number one on the list. Total sales for the series have passed 65 million copies. That is a lot of confused people, in my opinion. 65 million copies, man, I can't believe that. I see it, when I go into prison, sometimes they have like a five-book limit, and it's one of those books. It's like, surely if you could only pick five books in the world that you could have in your room, it wouldn't be one of those left-behind books, but they are. They are. And so what I'm trying to do is to get you to see something that's really, really interesting. Now, Jerry Falwell, I'm not a big fan of Jerry, Jerry's dead now, but nobody's a fan of Jerry in that regard. But um, Jerry Falwell said this about, about the Left Behind series. He said, about the first book in the series, he, he said, I quote, in terms of its impact on Christianity, it's probably greater than that of any other book in modern, modern times outside the Bible. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement that... He said, there, there's no other book. Think, think of all the books that Christians write, the good ones and the stupid ones. He said, out of all of them, other than the Bible, this one has affected Christianity more. Now, the reason I bring these kind of figures and these facts in front of you is that this is not an easy subject. This is a hard subject because most of you assume what you uh, believe to be true about the book of Revelation, and yet mo many of you have never read it. You've never undergone a real study. You haven't studied other books, you've read novels, and you've concluded that you know really something about the book of Revelation. I assure you, I was like that myself. I spent, when I went to seminary in 1989, I, I, I can't even believe that they give people the ability to abuse people the way I was abused for three years, and I paid for it, which is really strange. But the things they did to me are unmentionable, and we never spent a single class time on Revelation. Not one. I mean, we, we had to diagram text. We had to read volumes and volumes and volumes. There was one semester I had to read 10,000 pages. I mean, my eyes were all swollen up and I was sick. You know, and, but never once. Nothing on Revelation. And so if you're in that camp, you're in good company. Most of us are. And what I want you to do is just push you back just a little bit and kind of punch you in the throat, in a sense, to get you to admit that you really don't know one part of your anatomy from first base. Not in this regard. Bob, Bob got that. Um, and so what I'm going to do today is that we're not, I'm not going to tell you what these verses are. I gave you a little taste of something that I think there's a lot in these verses. We'll look at that next week. But what I want to do this morning is show you two benefits of thinking through what you believe about the future. Now, the study is going to be much bigger than, this, than Revelation. Now, the reason is you can't talk about Revelation without understanding, to some degree, what the Bible says 
about the gospel and some other things. But I, I really want to kind of incite your interest a little bit today by showing you why maybe this might be worth your time for the next year or so. It won't be that long. Um, but the, the first benefit that I'm going to show you this morning is overcoming the myth of neutrality. There's a whole bunch of you that hold this weird position that it really doesn't matter what you believe about the end. That's a myth. And hopefully I'm going to debunk that in the next few minutes. You can't sit on the fence. You think you can, but you can't. And so we're going to look at that first today. And then secondly, I want you to show, to show you how much this is a key or a segue to how you understand Christianity in general. And so we're going to debunk the myth of neutrality, and then we're going to look at how this opens up, I think, what some of you really don't know, how to understand the philosophy of L2. What we say and what we're committed to, you can't get there from the top of the ladder of where you stand. And so I think it's pretty, I, I don't think those are overstated, but I think that this is really, really important today. So let's start this first point of overcoming the myth of neutrality. I, let me just throw something out here. Now, I'm going to do the best I can. I am a theological geek. I read theological books all the time. I talk to theological people all the time. And a lot of my vocabulary is, is, is like some IT geek that you're just like, slow down and tell me in English. Now, I'm going to do the best I can whenever I develop terms for you through this study. And the first term I want to just kind of throw out there that you can get, because it's in one of the quotes I'm going to use later, is this term eschatology. Now, eschatology is, has nothing to do with me medicine. Okay? It, it, it has a term that actually is taken from the Greek original language. It just simply means last things. And so when you study eschatology, you're really investigating what you think about the future, about the end of everything. In other words, it's what you believe about the end of time. Now, let me qualify this, that both you that are Christians as well as a lot of non-Christians come here. My counseling right now is 30, around 30% atheist and agnostic. that are just people that are looking for answers. They just don't know what to believe. And they're looking for a credible explanation of things. So those of you that are here that are not Christians, that's, that's fine. You still have some idea of what you think about the end. Now, what I mean by that is that if you're an atheist, you think it's just kind of a crapshoot in a survival of the fittest, and you hope you're one of the last ones standing. You don't know what's going to happen. Now, famous atheists like Nietzsche and stuff, he went into kind of insanity when he thought, we came from nothing, we're in the middle, and we're going to nothing. What's the use? Now, most people are not that consistent in the way they view it, but... Both you that are Christians as well as you that are not, not Christians, you have this funny thing called eschatology in your brain somewhere. Now, what you really believe about eschatology, I think for some of you, is, is deep within your heart. And it's in a place that is really, you don't talk about often. You don't access it because you don't want to come across as weird. And what you understand about today is emerging from what you believe about the future. They're connected far more than you realize. And so this idea of neutrality is somewhat, I think, impossible. But it's popular. This whole notion is popular. Now, I want to give you these two quotes by Keller, this one large quote, two slides. Keller wrote, he said, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul says that Christ's return to judge the earth was part of his gospel. In other words, he couldn't talk about the gospel without talking about Christ's return. He said, if you read Psalm 96, verse 10 and following, you, you'll know why. The earth will be renewed and even the trees will be singing for joy. And if the trees will be able to dance and sing under the cosmos, cosmos uh, renewing power of the kingship, what will we be able to do? If this final renewal of the material world was part of Paul's good news, we should not be surprised to see that Jesus healed and fed while preaching the gospel as signs or foretaste of his coming kingdom. In other words, he says, if you get that, you should not be surprised that Jesus is actually ministering in a physical way when he's talking about the kingdom. 
Now he goes on to say this. He said, when we realize that Jesus is going to someday destroy hunger, disease, poverty, injustice, and death itself, it makes Christianity what C.S. Lewis called a fighting religion. When we are confronted with a city slum or a cancer ward, this full version of the gospel reminds us that God created both the material and the spiritual and is going to redeem both the material and the spiritual. The things that are now wrong with the material world he wants put right. That's a pretty good quote. Basically what Keller's saying is that somehow along the way we disjointed it and said, okay, God cares about the spiritual thing, but he really doesn't care about the material things. Those are all just going to burn. Just like a great bonfire. And what Keller's saying is what I believe. God shows us in Scripture that in Jesus' own ministry, and ever since then, the church has actually cared about physical things, not just spiritual things. Now, the questions that I would ask you is, when's that going to happen? Now, this is kind of probing and coursing through the back of your garage and your thinking. When's that going to happen? What will be the role of Christians in seeing that happen, in doing that? You see, those are good questions. You already have answers for them because of those presuppositions, those ideas. Now, let me show you a couple things. Now, all of the Christian positions can be, I think there's only four of them. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm not really going to explain them all today. I just want to show you their effect. Now, the, the pessimistic positions are three of the four. Now, this is where I would say all but 20 of you total in this room are probably in one of these positions. And it's a pessimist position, and they describe it as a position of discontinuity. And the reason is, is that what you believe about what happened in the beginning of the church, the sending out of the disciples, all this happened in church history is going to be interrupted. And Jesus is going to show up and change that. The flow is going to be interrupted and discontinuity will come to pass and Jesus is just going to be the hero. Now, in this chart, it's interesting because you see the two crosses at the bottom. That's the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus and you have time progressing. Now, many of you believe that we're in the last days, which means you're closer to that second cross. Okay? Now, the influence of the church is the arrow that's coming down and underneath that, most of you are actually under the impression that the, 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 the greatest impact that the church would have is in her past. And ever since the first century, when Jesus went back into heaven, we're now on this decline, and now evil is shown in the red. And evil now is increasing. And so as, the closer you get to the end days, the more convinced you are that we're in the days. Now, if, if you're a Democrat, you thought you were convinced that George Bush was the Antichrist. And if you're a Republican, you're convinced that Obama is the Antichrist. And that's how, that's how it goes, because everybody's trying to figure it out. Everybody's trying to say, okay, where, what's, what's going to happen? And so at the end, which, again, most assume to be true, it's almost like the church and Christians are crunched down kind of in the corner of your roof and you're crawling in the attic and you're right up against the eave and it's all hunched down because everything that's going on above us is being controlled by evil. Those are pessimistic views. Those are not good outlooks for the church. Now, the next slide I want to show you is a different view. It's the only view of which is optimistic and one of, only one of the, the positions that you have four to choose from and only one of them is optimistic. And the optimistic view, same chart, you have Jesus showing up in the first century, you have time moving to the end, and then you have a second return in this position as well. Now, this view actually fits better with what Jesus said when they said, tell us about what your kingdom's like. And he said, okay, it's like really small right now. It's like this tiny mustard seed right now. It's like this little pinch of leaven right now. And it starts way small. And so there was something about that first century that evil was bigger than it would ever be then. Kind of like when, when Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 is out in the wilderness and Satan tempts him by saying, you see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you. Well, the question is, were, were they his to give? See, I think they were. 
And you have this progression, you have this progression and this growth of a kingdom that he says, well, it's like this little teeny seed. You put it into the ground, you can barely see it. And before very long, it becomes the biggest plant in the garden. That's influence growing, not diminishing. And so this optimistic view sees the strength and the growth of the church is starting from almost nothing. Twelve men, one of them was a reckless traitor. But from that began something that overturned the greatest empire ever known in the history of the world within three centuries. By 323, by AD 64, uh, actually 60, AD 64, you have Nero pronouncing Christianity illegal. And by 323, it's the mandatory religion of the Roman Empire. That's growth. That's not contraction. That's expansion. And so these, these views, I think, I just want to show you in a graphic way. You see, if the church is growing, then evil is actually getting pushed out. And so you have pessimistic views, three of them, to choose from, and then you have one optimistic view. Now, the key to this, and what I show you, want to show you this morning, is that your, your most deep-seated beliefs regarding the future, even those that are not well-developed, even those you just have a hunch about, those most deep-seated beliefs will invariably determine how you perceive history and what you believe will become of it. There is no neutrality. And so if you come up to me, don't give me that terrible statement. There was something that emerged that I've heard a lot of people say in the past. I haven't heard it for a couple of years, and I don't care if I ever do again. It's called a pan mill position. And it's somebody that just is indifferent towards it, and they say, I just think it's all going to pan out in the end. I can't say what's in my mind right now, so I won't. But it's, that doesn't work. There's a myth of neutrality. You can't be neutral. And so I encourage you to figure out what you believe. I'm going to give you several weeks. Now, I have sermon notes that go out with all these footnotes and research, and you can, you can do it. If you would like those, you just let me know, and I'll be happy to send them to you. But this is going to be an interesting study. Figure out what you believe. It'll be worth your time. So let's go to the next point, this understanding Christianity. Well, how in the world could this help us better understand Christianity? Well, I think there's four things, and the first one, is that this really shows you the role of Jesus' church. Now, what I mean by that is that because of all this influence, 65 million people read those Left Behind books. And they're reading stuff about, you know, uh, you know uh, a pilot in a, you know, inside the cockpit of an airplane that isn't high on cocaine and drunk. He's just gone. And the plane has no pilot. Well, that's kind of a cheerful thing. And so people have read that kind of stuff, and so they're, you know, I, I see it on bumper stickers in case, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Like, that helps. You're behind them. But there's this weird stuff that people have been believing for so long. And what it's confused, it's causing people to, to, to really get in this weird place. Now, I told you earlier how many people are coming in now that are atheists and agnostics, because they just want help. My daughter is pregnant. My, my son is leaving, and we have terrible relationships. Those are the questions I get from atheists and agnostics, sincere people. But I have to tell you, in spite of this surge in, counsel, in counselees, people that have problems that will come in and actually talk to me as a pastor, in spite of all of that, every single time, everyone, not even one exception to what I'm about to tell you, when they come in and they tell me that they don't believe Christianity, I usually, my normal response is, tell me what you think it is. Explain to me what you think Christianity is. And not one exception, not one exception, they explained something to me that I wouldn't believe either. In other words, they tell me what they think about this system that you claim to believe, if you're Christians. Ouch. Um, and they, they tell me something about that, but, but it's so weird that I, I just usually look at them and, Every single time, I have to say, I don't blame you for rejecting that. And they said, what do you mean? You're a pastor. I said, I don't believe that's it. And some of what you have to dismantle is some of this garbage that's been thrown in along the way. And so I believe this ties into something. These ideas about Christianity, they're, they're influenced because there isn't any neutrality. Now, 
I, I, I want to show you that this study is going to help you answer one of the crucial distinctives of L2 because we believe the church in its ministry to you should be a source of freedom, not captivity. Now what I mean by that is the church shouldn't be a place that sequesters you away from the world. Ours had become that for a long time. And it became a place that a lot of you came to. Some of you still come here, not a lot. But it was a place you came to to get out of your life. And you see, that's completely wrong. But the majority of churches today are like this. They have become a landing place for people that really don't like our city. They really don't like our culture. They don't like big cities. They like rural places where conservative people are like them. And because of that, the churches have become little ghettos, become bunkers in which people go, Christian go, and they go to get away. It's not a source of freedom that turns you loose into your life. It's a place that takes you out of your life. And so the programming and the money and the resources that they put into their efforts are intended just to become like Velcro to attach more and more of your life. And before very long, you figure out you don't have a life besides the church life. See, that's wrong. That's not right. And I think that this is going to help you. The role of Jesus' church. So let me give you a couple of verses from Ephesians 4. This is the shortest. There's three main sections of Scripture that explain what spiritual gifts are in the church. The shortest list of gifts is taken from Ephesians 4 in verse 11 and 12. And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In the original language, the preposition that used here is the, the word ace, which means to equip the saints into the work of the ministry. The church is to be a launching pad, not a ghetto. It's not a, to be a source of captivity. If you attend a good church, you should be becoming more and more informed about the issues that are pressing on the minds of the people that aren't in this room with you right now. You should be being equipped to understand not only what the questions they're asking, but how you, how, the questions they're asking, but the answers that you can give to them. That's being equipped into the work of the ministry, not taken out. And so the personal issue for many of you is, okay, how do I balance this? Some of you really don't, when it comes to Christianity, you still don't really understand your right hand from your left hand. Well, you need help. And you need to avail yourself of, of some good counseling, maybe. But so, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. But, but you need equipped because we're making disciples. But you need to jealously protect your life. If you don't, who will? And so the role of Jesus' church, I think, kind of gets clarified in this. The second understanding of Christianity that emerges is cultural engagement. One of the biggest issues in the discussion today in the church is community. Community. Now, that sounds simple, but most people, when they come to church, they expect the church, unlike any school you've ever went to, any, even different than any family reunion you went to, the church is not here to provide friends. Now, there's some of you, I'm not looking at any of you particularly, there's some of you in this room that are just, you're, you're almost, not quite, as socially retarded as I am. I'm socially retarded, I mean that. But some of you, most of you are really good at making friends, but somewhere along the way, we began to think that the church's job was to provide friendly people. And so now we think it's normal. We actually think it's abnormal if this doesn't happen. We go into a foyer. We go into the entry of the, of the church. And people actually don't even let you get into the foyer. In some churches, they have people in the parking lot that are wearing lanyards that say, Welcome. And it's like if those people don't come and lavish all over you this really congenial welcome, it's like, Wow, this church isn't friendly. They're paid to do that. Well, they're, 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 they're shamed into doing that. That's not normal. That's not normal. The church is not here to make friends, provide friends for you because you don't want to make friends. It didn't happen when you went to school. It didn't happen when you played on your soccer team. If you sucked on the soccer team, they usually made fun of you. Now, we don't make fun of people most of the time. I do, but the rest of the church doesn't. But we're not that friendly. And it's not because we don't care. It's just you're not all of our friends. 
Now, this idea of cultural engagement it, it comes into focus here because it, it really does something. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is so contrary to the church today. And it just simply says what Solomon wrote. It says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. It, this, the righteous don't rejoice. That's the city. When it goes well with you, everyone in your life is able to say, yippee. Because when it goes well with him, it goes well with me too. The city. That's an interesting one. Now let me borrow a couple of verses from Revelation 22, the last chapter. Last chapter in the whole Bible. In verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve fruit, kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, for the healing of the nations. Those two verses really overlap. And John's saying, you know, in this, this whole mysterious thing that you're all confused about, out of the middle of this city runs this water. And in that water grows these trees that benefits everyone. Cultural engagement is not optional. If you're socially retarded, get over it. If you need rent a friend from the church, you might have to look someplace else. But if you're serious about learning how to engage this city, stick around. Now, Greg Bonson quote, created something he called Ghetto or Supply Depot. And I think you need to be looking for a church that's a supply depot. It's teaching you how to change a marriage that's gone static or declined. How to talk to your daughter who now wants to get her tongue pierced in a tat. It makes you relevant. Because it tells you what God believes and what he sent you to do. Now, one of the little monikers, one of the, one of the things... Now, if you've ever told me this, don't feel bad because I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But when someone comes to me and says, how do I get plugged in? That's church speak for take me, I'm yours. And I usually don't really respond well because I don't want you. And it's not, it's, not, it's not that I don't like you, and it's not that we don't want as many people as possible. I pray that one day this room would be packed because you care so much about your friends, you don't want them to miss what happens there. And we, we, you know we don't press you for money, and we don't press you for numbers, but I'm just hoping, I'm just saying, one day maybe you can think of some people that need to be here, and your desire for them to not miss this is going to cause you to finally get over yourself and invite them. And this room would be packed, maybe several times, I don't know. I don't know. We have about 5,000 people a week that download our sermons. It's not a ton, but 20,000 a month, that's pretty big. And so there seems to be a lot of people listening in, but they don't want to be a part of it. And what I'm hoping will emerge from this is a group of people that really get it. They really understand how to connect with people that are going down in flames. That's cultural engagement. Now, the third thing that comes into focus, I think, when you work through this, it's not in and of itself, but it kind of... You know, it's, this is like in the doctors when they're, they're testing your eyes. This one or that one? It's like, I can't tell the difference. This one or that one? I just told you I can't tell the difference. This one or that one? That one. It's not quite that nuanced, but there's some things that get out of the way. This one or that one. Now, gifts... And personal mission is something else. Now, you've heard me say over and over that we want you to turn your chairs around. I, say, I think that's simple English. It's just like your chairs, when you come to most churches, they're all facing me. We don't want your chairs to be facing me. On Sunday, we do. And these are bolted down, so you can't turn them. But when I say turn your chair around, that is a substantial philosophy of ministry. We're telling you, we want you to just stand up, turn your chair around, and look into your own life and tell us what you see. Now, the reason is, I wouldn't know many of your husbands if I tripped over them, or your wives, or your children, or your businesses, or your schools, or anything. 
I can't. I'm not a seer. And so I need you to tell us what you see because that's your mission field. But God has already gifted you to engage that. He's given you things that make sense out there. And so unless you help us help you discover that and develop redemptive strategies to engage that, you'll never discover how good you are. See, I did it again. See, some of you, there's an adage that sounds a little bit arrogant that I think is true of Christians. Most people in your life will never know how good you are. But the problem for some of you, you don't either. You've never figured out your gifts. You've never figured out actually how God has enabled you to make a difference in this city. Way better than me. Way different than Adam. Way different than any of us here. Because it's you. And you've got to figure out your gifts. You've got to figure out what your personal mission is. And that's what it's like to turn your chair around in this verse. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's a bunch of you that are thinking, yeah, right. Right. But it's true. And nobody knows how good you are because you don't either. Now, look at this verse taken from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says, we are his workmanship created. We're the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can't figure that out unless you know your gifts. You can't figure that out until you begin to develop a missional strategy. Just like if somebody showed up today and said, hey, me and my wife are getting on a plane tomorrow and we're going to Africa. I'm saying you're going to die. That's not going to work out well. You need a plan. You need a strategy. You need to understand what you're getting into. Because if you don't, you're going to die. And some of you are trying to engage mission with no plan, no intelligence, and no strategy. And I'm telling you, you're going to die. You're walking into a propeller out there. Because I walk into one every week when people come in and ask me. And you have not prepared. You don't even know who you are. And so gifts and personal mission come into focus. And then lastly, worldview. I talk about that a lot. Piercy just describes worldview as a mental map that you use to make sense out of things. You all have one, Christian or non-Christian, atheist or agnostic. You, you have figured out, you've plugged some, uh, what he calls assumptions into your motherboard about where we all came from, where we're all going. Well, that's the eschatology part. That's the last things part. Now, what's interesting in Proverbs, it says in chapter 29 and verse 18, he says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Now, what's interesting about the term for perish that's used in the, that King James Version, it means to be impoverished or destitute. And so it's basically saying, when you haven't figured it out, you're going to the poorhouse spiritually. And see, some of you expect to show up at a fun-filled, enthusiastic service where you feel good about yourself until 5 o'clock tonight and you start dreading tomorrow morning. That's not what this is about. It's way more important than that. See, what I'm trying to do is to get you to give a damn. Not about me. Not about this lighting or this sound system or these sweet pictures that Simon puts together. I'm trying to get you to give a damn about you. You see, that's what's really important. And the book of Revelation does something because you can't be neutral. And when you start actually looking and trying to figure out did the Bible really cause me to believe that Barack Obama is our Antichrist? Because if you believe that, you've actually started to quit. You actually believe in a theory that says, I don't know why we're trying. Now you think, oh, pastor, you're pushing it now. Am I? Drive around the city this afternoon. And go to all the hospitals that now they say exemplar on them now. But look at the real name. St. Luke's Presbyterian. St. Joseph. Lutheran. You know where those came from? Those came from Christians that didn't quit. They came from Christians that actually, they didn't have to have $30 million buildings. They didn't have to have all that stuff because they really cared about what happened to widows. And it seems like a hundred years ago, we all shut that down. And we told the government, go ahead and tax us and you take care of it. 
Well, I've got news for you. Nobody's doing it very well anymore because you're supposed to be doing it. Most of you, when you come to me about your marriage, it's one of the closest things in your life. It causes you more pain or happiness than any source of influence in your entire lives. And you do have no idea what God says about it. When it comes to wayward children, when it comes to running your business, when it comes to going to school, you see, this flows out of what you believe. Is that influence of the church going down? Or is it growing? You say, who could blame you if you're all about to get exterminated like a bunch of cockroaches? Who could blame you for quitting? And the church has pretty much done it. Now, I want to challenge you. I hope I punched you in the throat to rethink it. Because I guarantee you I got two, two or three emails this week from people that just told me, you know, I don't want any part of this. What do you mean you don't want any part of it? I already know what I believe about that. Well, tell me what you believe. And it's like, I, I look at it and, really? Really? Airplanes with nobody in the cockpit. And we're quitting. The church is declining. And no one seems to be able to figure it out. Maybe it's because you think you know something that you don't know at all. Stick it out in this series. In the end, I, I, I promise, I will not think ill of any of you if you don't agree with me. But at least try. At least give it a shot. You're intelligent people. This congregation is filled, almost entirely, not entirely, with smart people. Think through this and see if it makes a difference for you. Now, I want to end with a quote taken from Gary North. Gary North wrote the introduction to He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth Gentry, and in the introduction he wrote this. This is the title, by the way, of the whole series. He says, the eschatological, remember the end thing, the last things, the eschatological concern of evangelical Protestant Christianity in the 20th century has not been on ethics and Christians' responsibility but rather on the transcending of Christians' responsibility through a future divine intervention into history, discontinuity, or to remove sinners from history by ending history. It's just going to be over. The focus has been on our escape from corporate responsibility as Christians. The psychological motivation has been the quest for theological justification for the Christian's escape from any obligation to work to extend the kingdom civilization of God in history, bystander Christianity. Now, if you're a bystander Christian, I hope to make you so uncomfortable you either don't go here or you get over it. Because if you're going to sit on the sidelines while the rest of us roll up our sleeves and get to work, you don't belong on our team. If you're going to continue to imagine that it really doesn't matter what the church does or doesn't do, it really doesn't matter how many people are here, it really doesn't matter how much we learn how to talk and to say and to share the gospel. If, if that doesn't matter to you, you're not, you don't belong on our team. I'm just telling you. And so in the end, there comes a time where you own it. And in this study, I think you'll see why. So I hope you'll stick it out. All right, let's take your questions. So if Christianity is on the decline at 1% a year, doesn't it make sense that the pessimist view is more realistic. Well, I suppose you could look at it that way, but you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, the Denver Broncos lost in the first round. Does that mean they're going to suck next year? Yeah. <laughs> this is our Raider branch right over here. If you need to evangelize, focus on these people. It's declining because 75%, are you kidding me? 75% of this country you really think believes the gospel? Decisional regeneration in the 20th century caused most of you to believe you're Christians, and many of you are not. Because you prayed some prayer when you were an eight, you lived like hell. You've been a devil. I mean, if you went in and met my daughter, I probably would have shot you. That doesn't make you a Christian. Christianity is vital. It's salty. It's light. And what it takes for Christians to change things is completely cut from a different cloth than we saw in the 20th century. 
I mean, for Grand Love, people flock to huge, big churches because it's easy and convenient. They can be anonymous, completely unknown. But I believe that there is something changing now. Now, another thing that I would point out in regard to this question, why is the United States the focus of history? Some of you have become so obsessed with our country that you think as America goes, so does everywhere. Christianity, surprisingly, is the fastest growing religion today, not Islam. In Latin America, in Africa, in China, nothing rivals it, not even close. Now, in Western, Western places, people are confused and they're becoming Muslims. But Christianity has not a failed system. It's, I think a lot of people reject it. I already told you, if you're an atheist and you don't believe Christianity, I probably would be in your camp if I believed it was what you think it is. But it's not that. Figure it out and see if it's compelling. And so the pessimistic view it makes sense if you're measuring it according you know, to conditions in the United States. But if you look at the whole world, would you really have lived 300 years ago when your lungs are constantly filled with horse manure because the streets are filled with it? Would you really have wanted to, to live in places where the infant mortality rate was 50% or higher by the age of two? Would you really want to live in a place where the life expectancy was 40, 50 years old at the most? It's really not getting better? It's really not. I don't know, these phones are pretty cool. What they can do is amazing. Now, some of you are still convinced we're all headed into the pit. I think if you really look at it, it might look a little bit differently. Now, the filter you create is part of why I said there's no myth. The myth of neutrality. You, for those of you convinced that we're declining, that's the only stuff that sticks on your grid. In spite of the advancements, you can take your wife to the hospital, she has tuberculosis, and she can come home and be good. You can take your, your baby could be born with a hole in his heart, and he goes home well. That didn't happen a few years ago, but it's happening now but you're still convinced it's all crap. So you're going to have to stick it out for that one. Next, next question. Does this verse not apply when thinking about the end times? Matthew 6, 34, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, I suppose you could legitimately tie it to your whole eschatology, your whole end times theory. To say... It'll all pan out. Don't worry about it. That's not what that means. Whoever sent that to me needs to send me an email so I can talk to you personally. He's saying don't worry. That's don't be anxious. Now, those of you that are holding pessimistic views without really thinking about them, I think you should be anxious. That's not responsible. Now, if you hold it at the end, that's responsible. But figure it out. Figure out what you believe. But what he's saying there is that don't be anxious. You need to stop borrowing tomorrow's problem. But what the Bible says about what the future will be. It's like Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, Moses wrote, he said, The revealed things belong to us and our sons forever, but the secret things belong to God. This is not a secret. The book of Revelation was written by John, the apostle, to reveal stuff. And so go ahead and put it in the category where we shouldn't worry about it. And I think you're doing harm to Scripture. You're justifying an abandonment of much of what God has said. Stick it out and see what you think. Next question. In the optimistic view, where do you believe we are along the timeline? I wish I could tell you. I, I think it's possible we're not close to the end. What I mean by that is that it's possible that maybe this goes on quite some time and the improvement that, that God talks about is an improvement that makes such a radical change that we haven't begun to see. I don't think we're close to the end. So some of you are saying, oh, come on, we're not living to 100. We're not living to 100 years old. Simon sent me an article about Australia. It was just about three months ago. They're predicting that my children's lifespan could go into the 120s. That's amazing. They said the social economic impact is incredible. They're just beginning to investigate it because you're going to have to plan to work into your 90s. Now, that seems kind of like it's getting in the ballpark, maybe. There's a lot of things that are going on, but I'm telling you, Christianity is still salty. 
in its true form. It still sheds a lot of light in its true form. And I believe that you need to really prepare yourself. Now, personally, I think we're on the cusp of one of the greatest awakenings we've ever seen in our country. Now, some of you, that could be the straw breaker for some of you. But I've never seen anything like it. In 21 years of dealing with people, I've never seen people come in, atheist agnostics included, to say, can you help me figure this out? Can you help me understand what life is about? And they're coming in out by the droves. That's a good sign. Shame on you if you still don't know how to open your Bible. Christians can make a difference today. I hope you're one of them. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that uh, you would kind of just, not just instantly clear all this up. If, if you could do that, you could spare me a lot of hard work over the next several months. But I, I really don't expect you're going to do it that way. I, I, I think that there's people in this room that are sitting there muddled today. They're sitting there confused. They're sitting there maybe even offended by some of the things that I've said today. But they actually need to figure it out. They don't even buy their cars or their cell phones. They don't even buy mattresses with less investigation. But somehow, as important as the future is, we don't like to study it, so we read these fanciful novels. Sometimes they're entertaining and sometimes they're just plain stupid. And what I ask that you would give us is not this presto-magical clarity, but you would give us the, the earnestness and the desire. Just like there's people in this room that are, that are overweight, we cannot just pray a prayer that makes the fat just melt off our bodies. We have to be committed. We have to put on our running shoes. We have to sweat. We have to say no when we stand looking into the refrigerator and all that food wants to jump on us. That's hard work. But you tell us. It's just like relationships. They don't just show up because we pray. They're not easy because we're Christians. But you've shown us how they work. And you've made us really care. And that translates into good relationships. And to dropping the weight or reading the books that we need to do. And so what I ask more than anything else today is not this fresh perspective, but simply the courage to roll up our sleeves and to figure out what we really believe. And over the next several months, I think we're going to have a lot of occasion to do that. And so I just pray your blessings upon us, everyone that's in this room, and I think many that will continue to perhaps even bring others into this room. But in the end, I would ask that you would help us to know what it is we believe and why. And so we commit our time to you this morning. I thank you for those that have come. And I, I just pray that as we would worship and prepare for communion, you would show up and our, our singing, our attitudes of our hearts would mean something to you. And they would benefit us. And so we commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the L2 Sermon Series, Overcoming Bystander Christianity, taught by Dr. Russ McHenry. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, email feedback at l2today.com. And thanks for listening.